Be Thou My Vision. Love that song. That is one of my favorite songs as I look through the hymns of the faith. Did you pay attention to what we just sang? Often we sing and we get involved in the melody and, and we sing these great truths. And I want to bring a few things to your attention because I didn't pick out the music this morning. Ben did that while I was gone. I was appreciated all the things that Ben got going so that I could come in yesterday and just concentrate on the sermon and re- being ready to go. No, I didn't write the sermon yesterday, but went over the sermon again and, and got everything ready to go. And then I looked at this song and I thought if I had to pick out a hymn to introduce this message, it would have been Be Thou My Vision. Because as Zophar comes in with the third speech to Job here, it's so critical in what Job needs to do. Verse 1, we sang, Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart, not be all else to me, save that thou art. Thou my best thought by day or by night. Waking or sleeping, he's not talking about in church now, but waking or sleeping, thy presence. Thy presence, my light. And then verse 2, Be thou my wisdom, and that's what... Zophar is going to go to. As he gets frustrated with Job, he looks and he says, Oh, that God in his wisdom would speak. And before the end of the book, Zophar is going to get his wish. And he's going to kind of wish God hadn't because he's going to contradict much of what Zophar says. But he's going to say, Oh, that God would speak. Be thou my wisdom. And the problem we're facing as we go through Job, beginning in chapter 3 and then up until about chapter 39, is we get a lot of wisdom, but not much of it's totally God's wisdom. There are pieces of God's wisdom in there mixed in with Eliphaz's wisdom, mixed in with Bildad's wisdom, mixed in with Zophar's wisdom, and they all got into trouble when they mixed their wisdom in with God's wisdom. And it's an important thing for us to remember because have you ever done that? You ever have some of God's wisdom mix yours in there and end up in trouble? Say, no, I would never do it. We're going to talk about it some ways we do, because most of us do at times. And so we see all this. And then verse 3, riches I need not, nor man's empty praise. In chapter 1 and 2, doesn't Job say that? You know, God, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He goes on and he says, should we not receive Difficult things as well as good things from the hand of the Lord. But when Job lets the realization of the finality of much of what he lost sink sink into his heart and mind, Job struggles. You see, theology is a whole lot easier until it hits home. And when theology hit home in Job's life, he struggled with, what do I do with this? What do I do with this book? You're reading the scripture, and I hope you get into it and read it for yourselves. But as you read it and you read some of these promises, they're wonderful and they're precious until suddenly we get into the circumstances of life where we need to cling to them with both hands because things aren't working the way we thought they would. And Job's struggling with all that, and his friends are supposedly here to help him out. Last part of the song. High King of Heaven, my victory won, may I reach heaven's joys. You see, and part of what Job is going to struggle with, and part of what Zophar, in his wisdom, is going to try to bring Job back to, is the fact that you want to be joyful, but they don't quite hit heaven's joys. Are all the things that are joyful for you here on earth going to bring joy to you in heaven? And see, some of the things that Job thought were so important for his joy, God let Satan take him away. And... Job is blameless in many ways. Job loved and feared God in many ways, but Job wasn't perfect, and Job lost his joy. If you don't think Job's lost his joy, you need to come back next week and hear his response to Zophar. 
He gets pretty, he has sarcasm. I, I love sarcasm. It gets me in trouble all the time, okay? But I, I, I love I loved the, the humor in it. I, I love thinking through it. But when Job comes out with sarcasm, I can't hold a candle to Job. He really, he gives it to his friends here. But the reason all of these things are happening is a lack of being able to say, be thou my vision. Job lost sight of who God was. Bildad and Eliphaz and Zophar lose sight of who God is in the midst of trying to be helpful. And so we get to this last part, and if you turn to Job chapter 11, I was actually going to go through Job 11, 12, 13, 14, and then thought, 4th of July weekend, nobody wants to be here till the fireworks on Tuesday. So we're going to hit some of this later, but because so much of what Zophar says here, as we get into Zophar's speech in chapter 11, has truths that we need to get our minds around. But we need to be careful that we don't go down the road that he goes down with these truths because he gets his own wisdom mixed into this. Zophar again, by the time we see Zophar in chapter 11, look at chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. Then Zophar the Namathite answered and said, Should a multitude of words go unanswered and a man full of talk be judged right? Zophar looks and he says, I'm kind of annoyed with Job. I've had it. Okay, we, we had this great eloquent speech of Eliphaz, and he just contradicted him. And then we had this wonderful thoughts from Bildad, and he contradicted him. And he's contradicted all these wonderful friends who are trying to help him by trying to say, you know what, I'm blameless in all this. And the interesting part about that, Zophar is annoyed with Job, and Job's on the same page with God on that part. God said, Job's blameless. And his friends said, no, you're not. You can't possibly be. Because nobody loses everything you've lost if you're blameless. And they don't realize that God said the same thing about him. So Zophar comes in annoyed with Job. And you've got to be careful when you're trying to help people who don't see things the way you see them. You ever get annoyed with people? Okay, did anybody ever get annoyed with you? You'd never get annoyed with somebody. But did anybody ever get annoyed with you? How does that go? Does it help the discussion? Does it help you get to resolution? And Zophar, at this point, he's just like, he's almost to the point where he's looking at, and he probably didn't have a watch, he's looking at his sundial, and he said, okay, I've been here long enough. You know, seven days in silence, a long speech by one of my friends, another long speech by another, two longer speeches by Job, not getting it, and he's like, you know, let me just bring this to a conclusion and head for us. And he does it in a very, almost caustic way. And so he says, Job, do you think you have the audacity to go unanswered when all these wonderful truths are brought to you and you're not willing to change? Because at the bottom line of everything happening here, what did Job's friends want Job to do? Job, just repent because you're a wicked, evil man because God wouldn't do these things. You wouldn't have lost your children and your riches and your reputation and your health if you hadn't done something terribly wicked. And Job's saying, I've confessed everything I could think of and none of those things rise to the level of this kind of punishment. And Job's friends are saying, you're hiding something, buddy. Just give it up. Just give it up and get right. And and Zophar, his whole idea is, you know, you've got two, two groups of people. You've got contrite worshipers of God and you've got arrogant sinners. And since you don't seem to be contrite right now, Job, you must be one of the arrogant sinners. And Job is looking and saying, no. And Zophar is looking and saying, yes, and let me explain it to you. So with Zophar's view, he comes into these things with very little sympathy. you have any friends who aren't very sympathetic? Do you go to those friends when you want a pat on the back and a there, there, I'm, I'm with you? 
You know, there, there's certain friends that, that I just I, I don't talk to if I'm having a pity party because I know they're going to try and rain all over my pity party. I don't want them raining on my pity party. I want them pulling out the noisemakers and pity partying with me. And Zophar is one of these guys. There's just no sympathy here. Almost to the point of maybe there should have been a little. We see all that Job's going through. And you look and you see Zophar's cold disapproval of Job really shows how little he's heard Job's heart. Job's pouring out his heart in these chapters. What's Job's difficulty? Yeah, he's lost his family, and that's heartbreaking. He's lost his riches, and that's a huge setback. He's lost his health, and when you lose your health and you feel crummy, you just feel crummy. And here he is, and Zophar's looking at him and saying, you know what, just buck up. Just do what you need to do and get back on track and we can all go home and everything will be good. And his chiding of Job in these few short verses show how little he's sensed Job's hurt. Is Job sarcastic? Yeah, he is. Does does he try to defend himself? Yeah, he does. And at the end of the day, God looks at his friends and says, Job was right. Can you imagine that? How many days did it take to go through all these speeches? Scripture really doesn't tell us. But they've already invested seven days. They've already traveled. I mean, when you travel, you're, all, you're, you're investing in the travel, and you're there, and you're with Job for seven days without saying a thing, and then Job opens up and just lets loose with you. just rather die than be here now. And so his friends try to straighten him out, and we're only halfway through the straightening out, and the second half will go faster than the first half, but they're trying to straighten him out, and it's not working, and they're getting frustrated, and all this is going on, and in the middle of it, you can forget that Job is legitimately hurting. Should Job have been hurting? There's nothing wrong with Job being in sorrow over losing his kids. All of them in one fell swoop. There's nothing wrong with Job struggling over the fact that I've lost my health. Any of you been sick lately? You just want to get well. And if you're sick long enough, you almost get to where Job is. You ever been so sick, you I just want to die. And sometimes we're not literally saying that, but we feel like that. And so here's Job going through all this, and he's not getting any sympathy. He's not getting any kind of an idea that that his friends get it. And then on top of that, Job's bewilderment and his outbursts, although natural they are, those are the things that we find his humanity in. Most of us, God's not going to look and say to Satan, you want to see the most blameless, upright person on the earth, and he's probably not going to put my name in there. He's probably not going to put yours. He's, he put Job's name in there. And, and Job is trying to reconcile his picture of God with his circumstances. Because Job was like, I, my heart and soul was fully in serving God. And now look what happened. This is not the way life was supposed to work. Have you ever ended up there? You ever had a reversal? Financial? family, health, and you look and you say, look, God, I've served you with my life. This is not the way it's supposed to work. That's where Job is, and Zophar is the wrong counselor for him, to tell you the truth. Zophar is cold, he's callous, he's calculating, and the problem is, at points of his speech, he's right. He's got good, solid doctrine in his speech. Again, like his friends, it's not necessarily the doctrinal truth, it's his application to Job that's going to be wrong. And so he's looking at these things and he's saying, Job, just listen to me. And he offers Job a promise. And we're going to talk about that as we get to the end of this. But he's going to get to the end of all this and he's going to say, Job, this is what you need to do and God will make things right. And so what we find here is what we need is God's wisdom. 
Don't panic. It says 11 through 14, but I'm not going to make it there. What we need is God's wisdom. And I said, what we need is God's wisdom. Job needed God's wisdom. There's, there's no doubt about it. Job's three friends needed God's wisdom. There's no doubt about it. If they had had God's wisdom, they would have taken those truths and interpreted them differently. And they might have been a little bit of help to Job. But they didn't manage to get that. We need God's wisdom. Because sometimes you're going to look at your picture of God and then you're going to compare it with your circumstances and you're going to say, what? Something's not adding up for me. Something's not right. I'm supposed to be healthy, wealthy, and wise because I've done the right things. And that's where Job is in struggling with this. So we're going to have three sections of the speech. First four verses, Zophar is going to accuse Job. He's going to go right after him and say, Job, if you'll just get it right, we can, get, we can make progress with this. Next section of his speech, verses 5 through 12, he's going to talk about needing God's wisdom. It's going to be interesting what he does with that. And then the end of this passage, he's going to call Job to repentance again, saying, Job, if you just get it right, we can be done with this. We can go home. God will bless you again. Everything will be great for you. And so here we get into number one, the accusation. Starting in verse two, should a multitude of words go unanswered and a man full of talk be judged right? Should your babble silence men? And when you mock, shall no one shame you? For you say, my doctrine is pure, and I am clean in God's eyes. So Zophar starts offering up rhetorical questions to which he's looking for the answer that he's looking for there is a no. You know, should a multitude of words go unanswered? No, they shouldn't, so I'm going to answer them for you. You know, should a man full of talk be judged right? No, you're wrong, and we're right, so let me show you why. So he's doing all of these things, and he's basically telling Job what? Job, you're full of hot air. Job, in our vernacular, you're like a used car salesman. Now, if some of you sell used cars, you're going to have to forgive me for a minute. But used car salesmen, how many of you trust used car salesmen? Good. You're smarter than I, I knew you were a smart group. You know, used car salesmen drive me crazy because no matter what you do, when you walk into the lot, do they ever take you to the car and say, this car, its transmission's about ready to go. We have to change the oil every time we fill the gas. And if you take this car out of here, you're going to have to keep pulling to the left because it steers to the right. Now, do you want my car? They take you to the car and say, oh, this one's a beauty. And they all look good. They clean them up. They make them look good. But I told my, my son had to go look for a new van. And I told him, just put aside about $1,000. Because whatever the reason is that somebody traded that in, you're going to find it in the next few months. And they're not going to tell you about it. When we call somebody a used car salesman, we're telling them they're kind of trying to stretch the truth. Because they'll always tell you, you know, this car, was every, every used car on the lot was driven by an old lady just to church in the grocery store. That's why the mileage is low. And you're going to love it. I bought one car like that. And I'm really sorry, Ezra, because my son sold it to you. Okay, bought one car like that. It, it, it was a, a Cutlass Oldsmobile. And it had 40,000 miles on it. I bought it in about 2015. And it was a 96 with 40,000 miles on it. I thought, I can't go wrong with this car. Oh, was I wrong. (laughs) We, We worked on that car for the next... I spent more time under the hood and under that car than any place else for the next four years. And I thought, this little old lady pulled one over on me. And it was a little old lady who sold it to me. And it was a friend of mine who sold it to me. And it was her mom's car. And I thought, but it wasn't what it was cracked up to be and what Zophar does when he looks at Job he's saying you're just like those used car salesmen you're trying to clean up the outside for us and make us think everything's good and everything's right and we know there's a problem under the hood 
And if you just confess to the problem under the hood, we can get this right. That's what he said in the first few verses. He said, he's talking too much. You're, you're, should your babble silence men? And it's the idea of if you talk enough, people have to just say you're right and let you go. And he's like, that's not right. You can talk all you want. But Job, there's a huge problem here. And he says here, when you mock, and the idea of mocking is speaking rashly. Does Job ever speak rashly back to his friends after they accuse him wrongly of being in sin? Yeah, he does. So Zophar's got some of his facts right. He's like, just because you speak rashly, should no one, and shame you is the idea of accuse you or tell you that you're wrong. And so Job is looking at his friend, and then his friend tries to add a little bit too much to his argument. Look at verse 4. It says, for you say, my doctrine is pure and I am clean in God's eyes. Did Job ever say his doctrine was pure? Look at Job's speeches. What is Job trying to figure out? Why his doctrine's not matching up with circumstances and he knows something's wrong and he's trying to figure it out. And his friend looks at him and says, you know, you're saying your doctrine is right. Who was saying their doctrine was pure? Eliphaz, Bildad, and so far. And then he goes on and he says to Job, and you say, I am clean in God's eyes. Did Job ever claim he was sinless? If you listen to Job carefully, he's pleading with God and saying, I have confessed all the iniquity I can figure out and it's still not right. What's wrong? So Job's not clear. He's claiming he's blameless. And by the idea of blameless, again, a man of integrity. A man who when he does wrong, he gets it right. A man who's trying to follow God and fears God. But he never said he was sinless. So Zophar is using all these things and going after Job. Is it any wonder that Job gets upset? Because when you get to verse 4, whose wisdom do you have? Is that God's wisdom? Now, Zophar is pulling out of the bag of Zophar's wisdom. He said, look, the other guys couldn't get to you, so let me be a little bit more pointed and get to the point. And then we get to verses 5 through 12. And this is probably, it's not probably, this is the height of his speech. If you want to take something away from Zophar's speech, the fact that when he says in verse 5, but oh, that God would speak and open his lips to you, that. It's the most profound thing that Zophar says. Oh, that we would have God's ideas, God's wisdom, God's thoughts on what we're going through. Because everybody's got thoughts. Everybody, no matter how quiet or unobtrusive they seem, they have an opinion. If you really ask them enough time, you can get everybody's opinion. And in the midst of all these things, everybody in our story so far has an opinion. Job's got an opinion. Job's wife's got an opinion. Job didn't appreciate Job's wife's opinion. Job's friends have an opinion. Job didn't really appreciate their opinion either. God's not going to have an opinion. God's going to speak with truth eventually, just like Zophar asks. But in the midst of all this, Zophar says, Oh, that God would speak and open his lips, and that he would tell you the secrets of wisdom. For he is manifold in understanding. Know that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. So Zophar looks and he says, you know what we need? We need God's wisdom because God will settle it. You know what we need in our daily lives? We need God's wisdom. Because we make a lot of decisions. And we need to make them according to this book. And we need to be able to rightly apply this book to our lives. And it's not that Elvaz and Bildad and Zophar didn't know some of what was the truths of this book. Now, they had had them passed down at that point from generation to generation, but they knew what the truth was. They just didn't apply it very well. The wisdom wasn't there. And so he looks, he says, oh, that God would do it because God can settle this. 
The problem is Job is thinking the same thing. Oh, that God would speak up. Because if God spoke up, then I could get acquitted by God. You know, I could make my legal case and find out God would finally look at me and say, Job, don't know what happened, but you're not guilty. Zophar's looking at it and saying, boy, if God would only speak up, he could give his true wisdom to Job and say, Job, you're guilty. So they're both looking for the same thing, but they're looking for different aspects of it. And the interesting thing about this is, as Zophar says to Job, oh, that God would speak up and give you his wisdom. Zophar thinks he knows exactly what God would say. Now, Zophar is going after Job in the rest of the speech for his arrogance. Who's more arrogant? Job, who's searching for the truth, or Zophar, who thinks he knows what God would say? Oh, that's a dangerous place to be. You ever been there? You ever in the midst of a circumstance and you think, I know what God would say. You better make sure you know the God of this book. Because Zophar thought he did. But when God speaks up, at the end of the book, he says, Job, you better pray for those three friends because they're in big trouble with me. Because he didn't know what God would say. He was so arrogant that he thought he knew how to fix the situation. But God wasn't really in that. He says here as well that God, that he would tell you the secrets of wisdom. And the idea here of the secrets is that God knows what human beings do not. And that's the whole core of what's happening to Job. Does Job know why he was attacked? No. He he wasn't privy to that conversation. Did Job's friends know why Job was attacked? No. And so they do need the secrets of God's wisdom. Does God always give us the secrets of his wisdom? Or does sometimes he look at us and say, you just need to trust me? What does he do to Job? The most blameless man on the face of the earth. One who feared God. And at the end of the day, and even at the end of this book, he never gives those secrets to Job. He just says, Job, do you know who I am? We talked earlier about the fact that Job's big question was the question, why? And it should have been the question of how. How do I glorify God in this? But even bigger than that, as we get through this book, how is an important question. But the bigger question is who? Who's in charge of these things? Who is the God who's orchestrating all of this? Who is the one who's holding your life in his hands? And Job has to get his mind around that. And his friends aren't really helping him get there very much. They need God's wisdom. They need to know what God thinks and not what they think. And in our lives, we need the same thing. They didn't have this verse. So it's not really fair to apply that to them, but it applies to us. Turn over to James chapter 1, just very briefly. you got your Bibles, James chapter 1 and verse 2. I'm headed toward verse 5, and most of us know verse 5. When it comes to wisdom, what does James James say? If anyone lacks wisdom, let him do what? Ask of God who gives to all men liberally. And so we get to James chapter 1, and we find out it's in a very interesting context. It's in a very Job-esque kind of context. You see, James says in James chapter 1 and verse 2, Count in all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials in various, of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So the whole context of this is what? Suffering. Trials problems in our lives and at the end of it it says and if any of you lack wisdom if any of you gets into the midst of these various kinds of trials and doesn't know what God is doing then let him ask God who gives to all men the wisdom that they need to get through it now notice what it doesn't say it doesn't say that ask God and he'll give you the why God will give you the how if you remember the who it's about God God's in control of these things. God will give you the peace. God will give you the strength. And count it all joy. Is Job counting it all joy? 
Job lost his joy somewhere between chapter 2 and chapter 3. And it's messing him up big time. Because he's lost his focus as he's gone through this. And again, give Job a little bit of a break. How many of us have ever gone through in quick succession what Job went through in one day? And yet, Job is not able to get up from that and see God at work in his, in his life because the wisdom that God needs to give them isn't there right now. Job's struggling. And at the end of it, Zophar adds this note. And you know that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. Not only does Zophar not get it, he looks, he says, you know, Job, God should have gotten you even worse. What more could God have done? Short of taking Job's life, he gave Satan full carte blanche to do whatever he wanted, and he devastated Job's life. And still Zophar looks at him in his sympathetic comment to him and trying to help him to gain his feet again is, you know what, God could have done worse. It's not really good counsel he's getting from Zophar. Further we go on, and we see in verse 7 and following, Can you find out the depth in the things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? It is higher than the heaven, and what can you do? Deeper than Shoal, what can you know? As Zophar eloquently goes into the wisdom of God, he says, you know, think about the vastness of our creation. Think about the depths of the sea. Do we really know what's totally down in the depths of the sea? And there was a tragedy a few weeks, uh, in this past week and a half, trying to get down there further to explore the Titanic and what's down there. Because, and we have problems with those things. And you think about the vastness of the heavens. Do we really know what's out there? You know, we've got telescopes seeing all these light years away, and we still don't have a foggiest idea of exactly the vastness of what that is. And when you take into account all of that, so far saying now, when you, take account, when you think about God in the midst of all that, all that's not even great enough to hold who God is and how God works. He's just bigger than that. And part of the thing ought to have told Zophar, and that's why your wisdom is not as great as God's wisdom, so maybe you should use his instead of yours in the midst of this. It should have helped Job get his mind on what was happening there, that inexhaustible wisdom of God. And it's important that we pray for that wisdom, that we look to that wisdom. Often we make decisions and then we tell God our wisdom to justify it so he'll get on our page. You know, God, I think this is a good idea. We have to be careful when we start using our own wisdom because we have another ingredient we like to add into that. You know, I made this decision and I have peace about it. You know how many people I've talked to said, we have no money, but I made this decision and I went out and I bought this brand new car and I have peace about it. I'm like, well, wait till you can't eat next week. Have you seen the price of groceries? Your peace is going to dwindle. But we need to make sure we're wise and we're doing things wisely on a day-to-day basis that we're consulting God. God, what do you want me to do rather than what I want to do and get you on my page? And so Job is struggling with this. Zophar is struggling to help him with this. They haven't gotten God's wisdom, and then Zophar finishes with a call to repentance. Now again, Zophar's wrong. Because not that Job doesn't need to repent. Job's going to repent at the end of the book. But he doesn't have to repent for what Zophar thinks he needs to repent for. Some of you know that I went to Buffalo this week, and part of my job in Buffalo, I went there to help my son work on his car. The first thing I did before I went down there was say, take it to your mechanic. Find out exactly what's wrong, because I'm, not, I'm a garage mechanic. And I don't want to open the hood and misdiagnose and spend a lot of time working on the wrong thing and changing parts and find out, whoops, that wasn't it. That's what Zophar's doing. 
He's gotten under the hood of Job's life, and he's getting ready to change parts, but he's got the whole wrong diagnosis, so he's changing the wrong parts for Job. And here we have this call to repentance, which needed to be done. What did Job need to repent of? Think about that for a moment. God's going to tell him. Because, and that's why it's easy for me to say this is what he needs to repent of. But Job's friends looked and said, there's got to be some wicked sin in your life. What did he need to repent of? He had a wrong perspective of God and he thought he had the right to complain and argue with God. And he vehemently does it. And that's why when God brings him to his sense, he said, Job, do you know who I am? You're complaining about what I did and how I worked. Do you know who you're talking to? And Job needed to repent of his attitude towards God, not some other sin. And so here's Zophar trying to tell him, if you prepare your heart in verse 13, you will stretch out your hands toward him. If your iniquity is in your hand, put it far away and let not injustice dwell in your tents. Verses 13 and 14, that's good theology. Look at what he said. If you prepare your heart and stretch out your hands toward him. Just in a small way. Do you understand why we've instituted a short time of prayer before the service begins? It's an opportunity for us to prepare our hearts and extend our hands toward God. God, if there's sin in my life that keeps me from hearing the truth today, I want to confess it and I want it to be right with you. God, I want to lift up my hands because I need your wisdom and your truth. Zophar's got that part exactly right. If there's iniquity in your hand, put it away. What does he say? Don't hold on to your sin. He was convinced that Job was holding on to some sin. Do we ever hold on to sins that we ought to let go and confess and get rid of them? You've got a sin that easily besets you? Zophar's right about that. Let it go. Because your relationship with God is so much more important. And then he says, and let not injustice dwell in your tents. Don't let wrong things be a part of your life on a day-to-day basis. But then look what he says in verse 15. Surely then you will lift up your face without blemish, and you will be secure and will not fear. You will forget your misery, and you will remember as it was waters that have passed away. And your life will be brighter than the noonday. Its darkness will be like the morning. And you will feel secure because there is hope. And you will look around and take your rest in security. You will lie down, and none will make you afraid, and many will court your favor. So verses 15 through 19, Zophar says, if you'll only repent, what's going to happen? You just decide, life will be good again. Do you realize what Zophar just did? Zophar just took the doctrine of Satan as he stood before God and said, Job only serves you because you bless him. And he's applied it to repentance. He said, if you'll repent, God's going to make your life good. He's going to restore your joy. He's going to make everything good. There'll be hope. There'll be, there'll be promise. There'll be... And if Job had repented, was he going to get his nine children who were dead back? That was beyond him. That, that was something he was going to have to deal with. Was Job going to get those weeks back when he was sick and couldn't do much? No, he wasn't. Was Job going to be healthy, wealthy, and wise necessarily? Now, you've got to be careful because is that what God did for Job at the end of this book? But did, Job, did God have to do that for Job? You see, Job could have repented and God could have left him with struggling with his health for years to come if God had a bigger plan for that. Would God still be just? That's all of his questions to Job at the end of the book that we're going to look at. And so you have to be careful because sometimes we think, if I'll only do this one little thing, then God's obligated to do this over here. There are promises in this book that God will follow through with. 
But he's not necessarily said that every one of us will be healthy, wealthy, and wise every day of our life. That's not his will for us. And we, we need to take the scripture that we know and finish it off with the scripture that we don't like to put together with it. We all like Romans 8.28, don't we? You know that verse? All things work together for good to those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. Is that a wonderful promise? Does your life always feel good? Did God lie? No, we have to put it together with verse 29. What does verse 29 say? A lot of people can quote verse 28. Not many people go to verse 29. You know what verse 29 says? I'll just give you the recap on it. That God has predestined for us that we will be like Jesus Christ. It's God's purpose to make us like Christ. And so if it takes health issues to make us more like Jesus Christ and problems, guess what we're going to have? Because that's working together for our good. Because what God says is good and what we say is good sometimes don't match up. God says, you know what's good for you? To be like Christ. To be Christ-like in everything. And sometimes we're a little bit hard-headed. Sometimes we don't want to let go of that iniquity that's in our hands. And God says, well, I have a way of working in your life to bring that about, and it's for your good. So all things work together for your good because I'm in control. When Job lost all nine kids, was God in control? Did Job realize that? He did. Did his grief steer him away from that? It did. When Job lost everything, all of his riches, was God in control of that? You know, Job didn't have Romans 8.28, but I don't think he got up the morning after he lost his riches and he lost his kids and he's having trouble with his wife and said, amen, I'm so glad that all things work together for good. Didn't feel like that. But God was being glorified in Job's life. Even as Job struggled, and he'd be glorified again before this book is over. So we're seeing all this happen with the repentance. And Zophar's got the idea that so far often we get in our own lives. If I just let God hear what he wants to hear, he'll fix everything in my life. God will oversee everything in your life. But your wisdom may not be his wisdom for what you need to go through in coming days. And then you got verse 20. One parting shot from Zophar. But the eyes of the wicked will fail, and all of escape will be lost to them, and their hope is to breathe their last. Do you get the shot he just took at Job? Because what has Job been saying at the end of every conversation he has? What did Job say before? He said, I just want to... And so Zophar says, and if you don't repent and do what I'm telling you to do, remember, it's the wicked who fail, and they just want to die. So are you wicked or aren't you? He's trying to put Job in a corner. So what do we learn from all this? What do we take away from this? I just, uh, for in conclusion, we need God's wisdom in every area of our lives. We need God's wisdom regarding our families. Some of you are raising kids. Some of you are giving advice to grown kids. Isn't it amazing that once kids get past the age of about 25 to 30, suddenly you get a lot smarter? You know when they call you and say, Dad, what do I do about You better pray for God's wisdom. Because you need to raise those kids right. You need to help them. You need to give them what God wants them to have. We need to have God's wisdom regarding our finances. What do I do with it? What do I do if I don't have any? How do I make things work? God, I need your wisdom in working with this. We need God's wisdom regarding our health. Don't get old. That's wisdom. It's bad wisdom. I'm going to have a a wonderful time this week because I turned 60. 
And all of you keep looking at me and smiling and say, wait till you reach 70. It all goes downhill from there. And I think it's only 10 short years. You know, it, but what if God does take away unexpectedly your health? What if you're feeling good today and tomorrow you feel so bad you don't know how you're going to get out of bed? We need God's wisdom on how to deal with that. Because it's going to happen. What about wisdom regarding our circumstances? Job was a mess over his circumstances. And they were brutal. They were awful. And our circumstances will also crowd in on us. And we need to remember that it's not about the here and now. It's about the kingdom to come. And it's about God. And it's about his glory. I'm going to risk making some of you angry with me. But that's okay. It's the 4th of July that's coming. I love America. I love being patriotic. I love the red, white, and blue. I can't say that I love fireworks. I might love the fireworks better if I wasn't colorblind. But I love what it means to be an American. But being an American and being a Christian aren't necessarily the same thing. And America is not God's promised land or people. Now, God's blessed us as we did the right things from time to time. But what's the problem right now when we look at Job's situation? Could some of us get into the same funk over America as Job got in over his life and his circumstances? We do. Turn on talk radio. I listened to too much talk radio on the way down and on the way back. My wife was gracious and didn't yell at me. I was trying to stay awake. But I heard the same stuff over and over again. Oh, what are we going to do? And everybody's complaining. And everybody's got, uh, got a new controversy. they got new things happening behind the scenes. And at the end of the day, are you citizens here or citizens in heaven? Now, I love being an American. Don't, t- don't go away. A pastor, he doesn't like, doesn't like America. I love America. I love what God's done. But God's judgment's going to be on this nation. We're a nation who has rejected the truth of God. No, not all of us. But do you realize half of the country basically voted against the principles in this book last election? Oh, it was right. Okay, but there's still millions of people who voted against this. They don't want God's truth. This nation will murder babies. It'll marry people who have the same sex. It will tell you God got it wrong when he gave you your gender. So fix your birth certificate. That nation's going to be judged. And God sometimes is gracious enough to bring it back, and we ought to pray that God will do that. But if we are just overwhelmed with it like Job was overwhelmed with that, it'll stunt your Christian growth like nothing else. There's people that I get together with that that's all they can talk about because they listen to it all the time. And I've got, I've got to be careful because I want to be in the know. So I'm trying to listen. And it affects my spirit. So you've got to be careful because we're not citizens here. Do you realize? Peter said, we are strangers and aliens. What does it mean to be an alien? Have you heard that in the news recently? That's me. We shouldn't be putting our roots down here. And some of our roots are so deep in the United States of America that we haven't put many roots down here. What did Jesus Christ say? Did his disciples want to do the same thing some of us want to do as Americans? They wanted to fix their country. How many times is it, is it now, Lord? Are you going to kick the Romans out now? Are you going to fix the Pharisees and the Pharisees now? And what did he say every time? No, that's not my purpose. My kingdom's in heaven. Pilate asked him, are you a king? Yeah, I'm a king, but my my kingdom's in heaven. My kingdom, as he looked at his disciples, said, they ought to be in your heart. So what ought to be pervasive in everything we think about is the kingdom in our heart, not the kingdom outside of here. Do you realize that when Peter said we are strangers and we are sojourners and we ought to be peaceable and live quiet lives in the midst of the government we're under, he was talking about Nero? 
Nero was going to burn down Rome and attack Christians. And the reason is Peter said, this isn't, this isn't all there is. If this is all there is for you, you've been blessed, but I'm going to feel bad for you. Because we get excited about the end times, but we don't want to see the signs of the times. And we're seeing those come. So we need to be careful. We need to pray for those in authority over us. That's how we're supposed to handle things on the 4th of July. And not some of the prayers we prayed. God, if you would just take out Joe Biden, and you better get the VP with him, and uh, Chucky Schumer, if they could all go at the same time, and you would pray through all of that, is that what does God want us to pray? You know, you know what we're supposed to be praying? God, they need Christ. Joe Biden's going to die soon. Let's face it. He's getting old. He needs Christ. Chuck Schumer needs Christ. Governor Cooper needs Christ. And we ought to be praying for that. It's like, well, it's hard to pray for. Yeah, it might be, but that's why we were commanded to do it. Because they need Christ. You want to see things change? Have them find Christ. And so we need to be praying for that. We need to be spending our time bringing the people to the God. What was the mission Jesus Christ left for his church? It wasn't to straighten out Rome. It wasn't to straighten out Palestine. It was to do what? Bring people into his kingdom. Take my gospel out. When was the last time you talked to somebody about the kingdom of God and invited them to church? Compared to the last time you complained about the last thing that went through Washington and got passed. We need to get our focus right in all these things. Now that you're all mad at me, can I finish on something even more, more important? Repentance. Zophar is not totally wrong about repentance. We have a gracious God. If we repent, he will forgive us. He will do what Job needed, restore that relationship with him. That's what we need. Yeah, if he makes my life better, that would be wonderful. But there's nothing more important than my relationship with God. And that's why we're about to do what we do with the Lord's table. It is to remind us of the price that was paid by a loving God who graciously extended his hand out. And now he says there's forgiveness available for you through the blood of Jesus Christ. Because we're all sinners. And that sin is taken care of at Calvary. There is power in the cross, in the blood of Christ, power to restore that relationship. And no, it might not take care of all of your financial problems by tomorrow. You still might have to go to see the doctor because you've got health issues, but it'll restore your relationship with an almighty God and set you up for eternity. And we ought to be thankful for that. We ought to be thankful for a gracious God who's even gracious to Bildad and Eliphaz and so far in the end. What they said wasn't right. God was angry with them, and instead of just judging them, he said, Job, you better pray for your friends. And God was graciously ready to extend forgiveness to them as well. I don't know what you're struggling with today. I don't know what you're trying to figure out is happening in your life that doesn't seem right. But pray for God to give you wisdom, that you'll see his path through it, that you'll have contentment in his ways, and that you will be more like Christ at the end of that road. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for this look into Job. And Lord, there is so much in this book that we'll just never find if we don't take the time to spend some time reading through what's really there. Lord, we thank you for the picture of you that we see even as we go through this book and and the truths about you that are so intricately interwoven into the story of this book. We do serve a great God whose wisdom is so beyond what we can have. And yet you promise to give, give us the wisdom that we need. So Lord, we pray this morning that you'll work in our lives. Give us wisdom to see what you're doing in our lives. Lord, don't just give us what we want, but give us what we need. Even if it doesn't feel good at the moment, to help us to be more like Jesus Christ. As we go to the Lord's table now, I pray that we might remember the price that was paid by Jesus Christ. 
that we could have this relationship with an almighty God. For it's in Christ's name we pray.